2: Welcome back to another Baseball America podcast. This is your host, Jeff Ponce. I'm joined, as always, it seems, by Kyle Glazer, who was out at the ballpark last night for Game 1 of the NLCS in San Diego. We also had the final game of the Divisional Series with the Yankees overtaking uh, the Guardians at home and moving on to the ALCS to match up against Houston uh, tonight, actually. So, Kyle, let's jump into the NLCS. You were there. You have some first-hand takes. Exciting game, um, tight game, great pitching performance by Zach Wheeler and the Phillies.
3: Yeah, I mean, that was what was as impressive as anything else. Obviously, the Kyle Schwarber home run we'll get to it in a minute was extraordinarily impressive, but um, it's just kind of how easy Wheeler made it look. I mean, seven scoreless innings, one hit allowed, 83 pitches. I mean, you know, it's the Padres lineup that at times has certainly struggled this year and then they've been a little boomer bust, but there's still some dangerous hitters in this lineup. And Wheeler just, just made it look easy. I mean, just sliced right through him. Um, he was, you know, this is what you want from an ace caliber pitcher. And, and that's what he did. It was dominant. And on the other side, you Darvish was really, really, really good too. Um, the home run he served up to Bryce Harper, that was a good pitch. It was off the edge of the strike zone, you know, up and away against the left-handed hitter. And Bryce Harper, just being the fantastic player that he is, went up and got it. Um, and then the Schwarber home run was was really his one mistake. And that was all it took with the way Zach Wheeler was throwing. I mean, it was, it was impressive and, and give Sir Anthony Dominguez and Jose Alvarado credit too. Uh, you know, pulling Wheeler after 83 pitches, pitching as well as he was, his velocity was down three or four ticks. Um, you know, it, it's still a little bit of a risk when you pull a guy who, who's pitching as well as he is and look velocity is going to go down the deeper you go into a game. That's not unique. Um, it's just a matter of, can he still execute with it or not? You now the Phillies decided to go to their bullpen and, it was extraordinarily impressive. I mean, Sir Anthony Dominguez, again, retired the side on on nine pitches there. Um, and then you go to Jose Alvarado, you know, the walk, the error, you think, okay, is this going to fall apart and came right back and, and finished it off, and, you know, especially that at bat against Josh Bell. Josh Bell looks like he had no chance. And some of that's the way Josh Bell's been swinging the bat, but a lot of that is just how filthy Jose Alvarado is. So um, give the Phillies pitching staff credit. We talked about this before the series that you know they have two fantastic a starters, and their top two or in their bullpen, they can get you. And, and that was the formula that worked for them pitching wise last night.
2: Yeah, and you know I think it was it, funny what you said about about Wheeler. You know, and the velocity dropping, and that does happen with a lot of guys. I, you know I don't necessarily have you know it worked out. I don't necessarily have an issue with the decision, uh, as you got seven scoreless out of your starter um you know if you can save those bullets and potentially use them in a a tighter situation when you really need it later in the series that could pay some dividends you give it to your eighth and and guy your ninth inning guy they both pitched extremely well I mean you know Dominguez came out of the pen just absolutely firing as he as he struck out two over a clean inning of work um you know the thing the thing with this game and, and Wheeler in particular was just how efficient he was um He was. He had only allowed one base runner going into the fifth inning. Had not allowed a hit. uh, Finally, gave up that hit. You know, with one out in the fifth to Will Myers. Um, But I think that puts into perspective just how efficient and just how well he was pitching throughout the day. It didn't really. You know, uh, that was the only base hit that he allowed the rest of the game. Even over the next few innings. So
3: only base runners allowed the rest of the game. I mean, this this puts present. The game was over in two forty three. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it was. This is the very definition of, of making quick work of it. Um, Wheeler and, and Darvish as well. I mean, again, it was, it was a really, really good pitching duel between two aces and Wheeler was, was just a little bit better, made one fewer mistake. And that was the difference. He was lights out. That was his dominant of a pitch performance you'll see. And, Again, this is what Zach Wheeler is capable of. He is an ace-level pitcher, whether he gets that recognition or not. I'm not sure, but you look at just what he's done the last few years, especially since he came to Philly. I mean, he is that guy. He's the guy you can give the ball to in game one. And the nice thing for the Phillies is their game two starter is also a guy that if it was game one, you'd feel very comfortable giving the ball to an Aaron Nola. So yeah. uh, we talked about with the Braves series. You know, the Phillies, you know, whenever they can throw these two on there out on the mound, more often than not they're going to have the best starting pitcher in the game and that's a huge advantage to start with and again they're in a really good spot right now being able to throw Noah, and then they go home um, you know if the Padres are capable of coming back they dropped the first game of the series against the Dodgers and you know similarly you know they, they were able to come back and make it competitive but they fell down early Um, and, and we'll see if they can do it again you know here today it's an afternoon game in Petco Park it's a short turnaround and um, we'll see. One of the big things is, is the crowd at PECO was just so instrumental in helping that team get going uh, in the Dodgers series. And I know some people doubt the veracity of that. But um, if you were there, you'd understand. You talk to the guys in the clubhouse, them, I and they'll tell you directly how much of an impact it had. You know, last night, it was a lot more subdued. Um, the fact that you know, it wasn't the Dodgers and it was a, a Tuesday night as opposed to a Friday, Saturday night Um that affected things a little bit. They didn't really get up until the ninth inning when there was a little bit of a chance there. And I think a Wednesday afternoon game as well. It's it's not going to be the same level of intensity. And it's going to be a prime opportunity for the Phillies to come out of San Diego you know, up 2-0 going home. But we'll see. But this is a Potters team that's shown the ability to to fight back and, and win ugly if they have to. And it should be a great matchup.
2: Yeah, and it was a game that could kind of lull you to sleep a little bit, too, if you're there. Uh, sort of following not that it's not exciting I love games like this this is my personal favorite but just meaning things are moving so quickly outs are happening so quickly there's so few balls in play, so few base runners I think there were in total seven base runners this entire game and both of the runs came off of home runs so let's talk about that Kyle Schwarber with uh, <laughs> a near 120 mile per hour ball off of the bat that traveled into the upper deck there in right field um
3: I think it was 487 feet. If I 488 feet. So eighty eight. So I missed it, it by a foot.
2: Sorry about that, Kyle.
3: But yeah. Uh, like hey, every foot fast fast. I mean, it was, you know, I'm my press box seat is right behind the plate. So, so I want to take a step back. I really was thinking, what are the, you know, longest and hardest hit home runs I've ever seen in my life in, in a game, not counting home run derbies or, or anything like that. Um, I was in the stands when Barry Bonds hit a grand slam off Dennis Tankersley that went off the scoreboard at old Qualcomm Stadium. That was 482 feet. And I was covering the game when John Carl Stanton hit a home run out of Dodger Stadium, uh, hit the top of uh, the, the folding uh, the folding roof they have there in left field and bounced into the parking lot. Um, and this was was right there with those. This was longer longer than those were. mean, um, the thing with those two is they were high towering drives that were absolutely crushed. This one, what made it so unique and so amazing was this was like a missile. This thing didn't have an arc. This thing just kept going up and up and up and just launched. I mean, so again, I, I think it's visible on TV, but I don't know if it's the same vantage point you get in real life. The overhang in right field at Petco Park foot second deck, that is nowhere near the right foot field wall. That is way back there. He, I mean, I, I checked with the Potters last night and they confirmed it. No one in the park's history, the park's been open for 18 years. Barry Bonds was hitting home runs there. I mean, a lot of big-time left-handed power hitters have played games in Petco Park. No one has ever hit a home run into the second deck and right field in that stadium. Yeah. Kyle Schwarber did it, and it was it was the sound it was it was the speed with which it came off the bat just in person yes. seeing it, that was what was just like oh my god um and seeing where it landed was definitely a did that just happen moment and and it was cool you know post game i was down in the Phillies locker room and one of the things that i quickly picked up on and i wrote about today it's up online at baseballamerica.com is I mean, even they were like fans and and giddy children, like, oh my God, did you see that? I can't believe what just happened. No way that doesn't happen. It was it was the type of home run that, you know, completely energizes the team it happens for and completely deflates the team that it happened against. And Reese Halston's talked about it. I mean, it in a way it counted like more than one run because of just the momentum swing it provides. And and Bryson Stott was funny saying it should have counted for two home runs, but I mean, in, in an odd way, there is some truth to that. Um, mm-hmm. That really just kind of deflated the park and, you know, deflated the Padres. Anytime you give up a home run like that, I mean, that's just a huge emotional moment um, that, you know, helps the team it happened for and yeah. really can can be a gut punch the team it happened against. And, and that's what that home run was.
2: Absolutely. My favorite line that I, I heard from, from Bryson Stott today about the home run was, uh, is that he said it turned to a golf ball size ball within two yep. seconds, yep. and I thought that was a great way that if you've been behind home plate before and seen one of these drives, it's 115 plus. It 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 really sort of changes uh, how the ball looks as it travels, um, oh. you know. And it's just whatever you know, whatever those forces are. I'm not enough of a physicist to explain it, but. Uh, certainly, you know, big home run, and then you know Harper hit a nice home run to the opposite field uh, as well. A few innings later, so you know, some, a few some big, before.
3: A few excuse minutes. me, that before, was the uh, first one. Yeah, yeah, I meant
2: to, you know, Schwarber was a few innings later. Um, but but Ho- yeah, Hoskins,
3: so I was okay. Hoskins, uh, Reese, Hoskins, and Dalton Guthrie also completely independently used the golf ball analogy. I mean, that's yeah. they all said it independent of each other because I mean, that's that's the only thing that comes to mind. How fast that baseball got out of there and, and what it looked like from that vantage point.
2: And just the way Schwarber swings too, it's sort of remarkable because it's not all, uh, you know, hand, you know, arms and legs and everything sort of flying out there to get in front of the ball and crank something out. It's like, you know, he's very sort of succinct and short to the ball. And, you know, sometimes that path has been uh, a hindrance to some of his numbers, but when that guy gets a hold of one, man, there are very few players in the world that can hit the ball as hard as Kyle Schwarber. That said, I think it's the perfect time for us to take
4: a quick break.
2: All right, and we are back. We're going to discuss the final game of the American League Divisional Series between the New York Yankees and the Cleveland Guardians. This obviously went five. Um, There was uh, a little bit of controversy around this game five. It was as it was supposed to be played on Monday night. Um, They held off for a long time uh, before they announced the decision to cancel the game, uh, which sent fans into a fury. I know that uh, the Cleveland guardians had to find a hotel to stay in. They ended up staying in lovely Yonkers uh, right down the road from the Bronx. Um, So sort of an unusual setup for this game, but I felt like the Yankees were going to come, come in and win. I felt that the delay in the game only helped them a little bit more. When you look at it, you know, they get the three runs right in the beginning. They never look back. They win the game five to one. Um, You know, the, there were times where it seemed like the guardians were rallying and just consistently were never able to, you know, materialize anything into, into any runs really.
3: Yeah. And then give the Yankees pitching staff credit. You know, it was funny. We, we talked about it going in, how I had picked the guardians to win in five and felt like I had to stick with it. But when I saw the pitching match, even when it was Tyone versus Savali, I was like, Oh man, I don't actually like this pick. Then um, obviously when the Yankees decided to go with Nestor Cortez on three days rest, you know, it, it only gave them a, a bigger advantage. And and that kind of leads into the discussion of the Guardians sticking with Aaron Savale, rather than going to Shane Bieber on three days rest. You know, he, he, what's tough about it, I think a lot of people are you know, saying, what are the Guardians doing? How could they do that? What's tough about it is, for the most part, and I know this sounds odd considering Nestor Cortez just pitched really well on three days rest. Generally speaking, pitchers on three days rest are... are Often ineffective. Um, I remember looking into this last year and sort of looking at how teams were handling not wanting to use a lot of their fourth and fifth starters and what worked better if they used a starter on three days rest or a bullpen game. And to my surprise, you know, the bullpen game was significantly better. Starters on three days rest, their ERA was like five and a half. I think it might have been higher. You know, starting on three days rest is, is very, very, very difficult. And there are very, very, very few pitchers out there who can do it effectively. Even the guys we think of as true number ones. I mean, that was one of the biggest things with Clayton Kershaw on his postseason legacy. A big part of it was the Dodgers kept starting him on short rest and it didn't go well. And it doesn't go well for most pitchers. Again, the guys who can do it are the exception. I think Terry Francona and the Guardians organization especially when it comes to pitchers have earned the benefit of the doubt of knowing their guys knowing what they're capable of and if the guardians given Shane Bieber had never pitched on three days rest before given he has some injury history if they looked at it they talked to him they looked at and assessed it and said you know what this will not go well if we do this I think you have to trust them they have earned that right um and it's a tough call. And that, that kind of puts it more in a situation where, okay, then it goes more to, well, if you're a postseason team, you know, you need a little more starting pitching depth so that you don't have to turn to Aaron Savali in a winner take all game. I think if you want to criticize the Guardians, you know, maybe that's where where you could is just the fact that they didn't have any other options. Um, you, you want to try and do something maybe at the deadline to ensure you have a little more starting pitching depth, just in case you look, you know, injuries are gonna happen or strange occurrences are going to happen and maybe you want to add some more depth. But in terms of the decision, not to use Bieber, if, if the guardians knowing their pitchers as well as they do and being able to assess their pitchers as well as they do made the, made the determination that he could not go or would not be effective in any way, you know, that's their prerogative. And I think you, like I said, you have to give them the benefit of the doubt.
2: And I also think that, you know, if there's some length that's needed in the back end of this game, and let's say that, you know, um, they tie it up at some point Uh, maybe that changes things. And maybe we do see Beaver. You know, I think that there was always that sort of potentially lurking, you know, we don't know Uh, we're obviously, you know, talking in hypotheticals at this point, but the other thing is too, I don't blame a manager when a guy has been scheduled to make a playoff start and then things are rescheduled and reshuffled a little bit and you have an opportunity to maybe have somebody else available that guy has done the work. He's built up. You've told him that you trust him for this game. I can understand him rolling out there. You know, so it just it went as poorly as possible. Savali so got one out. He gave up three runs. And ultimately, it's very easy to sort of second-guess that decision where, you know, overall, the bullpen pitched pretty well. I know that Hentges gave up a, a run. Stefan gave up a, a run. Um, but ultimately, you know, when we look at the, the the totality of this game, the game was lost within that first inning. Um, where they scored the game winning run. Right. I mean, pretty easy to see now that that being said, Savali gives them two or three good innings, maybe only gives up a run or maybe even two things might look a little bit differently. Um, so, I, I, you know, we can we can second guess the decision, I think, with all the factors and everything that was going on. I don't hate the move. Um, and I think that, you know, strategically it could have even provided an advantage if Savali ultimately does his job and they can maybe go to Bieber if they go into extras or something and having a guy that can go two or three. Well, I I,
3: I think, I think it's easy to fall down the theoretical hole. I think we have to look at what what actually happened. And I think ultimately I understand the decision. It just put him in a bad spot because realistically you don't want Aaron Savali starting a winner take all game for you in a perfect world. But this was the situation they were in, but I do want to give Yankees credit. Again, I talk about that. Not a lot of guys can pitch effectively on three days rest. Nestor Cortez went out and did five innings, one run. I mean, it was, it was good. It was effective. Um, you know, didn't run too many deep counts at all. I mean, 61 pitches in five innings. He only got two strikeouts. Again, this was a situation where, you know, he was able to to pitch with the stuff he had on this day. Um, didn't have, you know, his best swing and miss stuff. Cause again, very rarely do you on three days rest. But he was able to to do what he needed to do to get outs and be effective. Yankees bullpen four scoreless, uh, you know, gave up some hits, but again, they pitched out of it. And look, Aaron Judge and Giancarlo Stanton, those are the two guys the biggest focus is is going to be on this postseason. Those are the two guys the Yankees need to to turn it on if they're going to get to the World Series. Um, Judge was was struggling for a little bit up through these last couple of games. And Giancarlo Stanton's postseason struggles with the Yankees especially have been well documented. And he was struggling going up to, into that at bat. You know, big guys coming through in big moments. I mean, Stanton, that home run in the first inning just got the Yankees out on the right foot, immediate three nothing lead like that. I mean, that's, that's, that's very, very big. Judge following up with a home run in the second. I mean, this is what the Yankees need these two guys to do for them to get where they want to go. And they did it, providing big power early, putting a team away early. I mean, that's what these guys are capable of and it was it was good to see because they're so talented and you want to see the best players in baseball performing at their best on baseball's brightest stage and now we get the yankees astros alcs which i think if everyone's being honest is the matchup they really really wanted to see uh the two best teams in the american league all year with a lot of bad blood between them Uh, it's going to be a great fun series
2: yeah absolutely i'm uh Excited for this one to kick off, and I guess my question for you is, Astros or Yankees, how many games?
3: Yeah, well, I picked the Astros at the start of the postseason. Um, I think the combination of just starting pitching depth they have combined with a really, really good bullpen. You know, obviously they're coming off an 18-8 game, but they are going to be more well-rested than the Yankees are uh, coming into game one. I do think it's the Astros. I'm going to go Astros in six, but I think it's going to be a great entertaining series. And I can absolutely see a scenario where the Yankees win. Um, This is a situation where I don't think it would be an upset if the Yankees won. Now, again, the Astros are the team that had the best record in the American League. They're the ones that are defending American League champions. They have home field advantage, so clearly they're they're the favorite. But I guess what I'm saying is the Yankees have the talent and the ability to beat them. Um, so it wouldn't be some earth shattering shock. But again, Astros and six is where I'm at. It and we didn't get a chance to make our predictions yesterday. Uh, My prediction was Padres in six for the NLCS, which I feel a little differently today after watching what unfolded last night, but, but that's my retroactive prediction that I feel like I need to. You posted it
2: in the Slack last night before the series started, we made our picks. I said Phillies in six and I said, Yankees fans, you can hate me. Astros in four. I just think, I think they're the best team in the playoffs. I think that the way the series ended up working, um, in terms of when they clinched, how they clinched, how their pitching is set up. They now have Verlander on seven days rest. They have Framber Valdez uh, is going to be on seven days rest. They have full rest for McCullers and Garcia and all these guys, plus their bullpen guys have all been rested. And, you know, even in that 18 inning game, you know, they only went to five innings of their bullpen, which is remarkable. Um, I just think they're they're set up so perfectly for all this. The other thing that I really appreciate about this Astros team is They've been through so much, the guys that are veterans that have been here for a while, over the last three seasons in terms of what they've dealt with in parks and booze and everything else. These guys feed off of it. Alex Bregman was loving the loud booze and the hatred that he was feeling in Seattle. And I talked to one of my friends this morning with the Astros just about some of these things. And he's like, these guys love that. They love the negativity They feed off of it. I just think when you think about the length that that they have and the pitching staff that they have, the fact that they have a ton of playoff experience—I mean, as much as anybody—they've been to six, you know, consecutive uh, uh, championship series now, right? Yeah. And they feed off of that negativity in, in visiting parks. They are a really tough out. That taking a step back now, I think that we could have made the case even before the playoffs that they actually were the most playoff-ready, battle-tested. Championship caliber team in this playoffs, even with the Dodgers having a tremendous season, winning 111 games. I know this is a little bit of Monday morning quarterbacking after they lose a series, but I think, I think we still could have said, Hey, the way this team has been built and put together, it's really dangerous. And I think they're going to be dangerous for another five or six years. That's the scary thing.
3: Yeah, we'll see. But it, it's going to be a good series. Like I said, there's no love lost between the Yankees and Astros. Um, 2017 was, was a classic. 2019 was a classic. And I expect 2022 to be a classic as well between them.
2: Well, that uh, wraps up another playoff podcast. We're going into the uh, championship series. I guess technically they're already here. Thanks for tuning in. we got more shows coming for you tomorrow.